As we continue worshiping, looking to the Word of God, I ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke uh, chapter 13, that's what it will be today. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. And I know uh, your bulletins might have said 10 through 17, but I made a late switch to include verses 18 through 21. Luke 13, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. Let us, uh, and I'll just want to read the whole text to, for, uh, before we look at it today. Let's read. Thus says the word of God. And he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she uh, was bent double and could not strain up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for eighteen long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for its revelation of your will for us. Thank you for how it reveals to us the mind of Jesus Christ. And particularly this day, Lord, help us to learn what you will have us learn from this passage. Help us understand the nature of your kingdom, the kingdom that, uh, that Christ came uh, to establish and to build through his death on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we can be a part of this kingdom and enter through faith in him. And as those who are kingdom citizens, help us to understand this kingdom, that we might proclaim it and pray for it and seek it. God, we pray for anyone out there who does not yet know Jesus Christ. We pray that they, too, might come to know how they may have uh, entrance into your kingdom today. We pray you be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up as a child on Saturday mornings watching cartoons, uh, there was oftentimes uh, these little short little cartoons called uh, Schoolhouse Rocks. And I don't know if any of you remember that. As uh, Probably if you're a Gen Xer like me, you might remember that. But these three-minute cartoons on various subjects. And one of them was a well-known one was named 
was called conjunction junction. Conjunction, you remember that? Conjunction junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses, something like that. Well, as an interpreter of scripture, uh, I've come since come to learn that conjunctions are are quite significant. Uh, oftentimes we overlook them in scripture, uh, but yet they uh, can tell us much about the then reveal much about the interpretation of a text. This week, a particular conjunction made me reevaluate uh, what section of scripture I would preach. I was intending to preach 10 to 17. I was intending to preach a message on the healing of a woman on the Sabbath and about the, the nature of the Sabbath. But if you may notice in verse 18, which we read, it begins with so. So he was saying. That conjunction so is sometimes also translated therefore. Therefore he was saying. Now, verse 18 to 21 are two parables that could either connect with the following or preceding passage. Well, they connect with both, really, but what do they connect with more? What do they, what, uh, or do they stand on their own? Well, the passage that follows these parables is, involves a change in setting. So it's more likely that verse 18 to 21 connect with this, the preceding passage in verse 10 to 17. And it's the presence of this conjunction, therefore, therefore he was saying, in light of what took place in verses 10 through 17, therefore, Jesus was saying this. And what was he saying? He was telling us about the nature of the kingdom of God. These two parables about the kingdom of God arise out of, uh, infer out of from this healing and miracle. Taken when we take verses 10 all the way through 21 as a whole, our passage today isn't really just about a healing miracle. We've seen others already. It's very similar in the Gospel of Luke. But rather, Luke intends, particularly as he connects this, as Jesus connects it with the instructions about the parables, it's an intention to teach us about the nature of the kingdom of God. And this is important for us today because if you haven't yet learned, Jesus is all about the kingdom of God. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Luke. He's all about God's promised eternal kingdom of peace and righteousness that will be ruled by a Davidic king. Every Israelite looked for this kingdom. Luke's Gospel revealed in chapter 1, verse 32 to 33, that Jesus, the son of Mary, would be this Davidic king, this king whose kingdom would have no end. From the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus' purpose was to preach the kingdom of God to the cities of Israel. We see that in chapter 4, verse 43, in chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 11. Jesus taught on the characteristics of the kingdom citizens in chapter 6, verse 20 and following. He called his disciples as well to proclaim the kingdom of God in chapter 9, verse 2 and 9, verse 60. And he called them to pray for this kingdom as he taught them how to pray in chapter 11, verse 2. Throughout his ministry, Jesus often emphasized that the kingdom of God had come near. It had come near because he himself, the king of this kingdom, was in their presence. We saw that chapter 10, verse 9, chapter, verse 11, and chapter 11, verse 20. Now, just in the very previous chapter, chapter 12, Jesus had exhorted his disciples to seek this kingdom, seek his kingdom, chapter 12, verse 31, and encouraged them with the truth that the Father has chosen gladly to give them the kingdom. Verse 32 of chapter 12. 
So if disciples of Jesus Christ, if followers of Jesus Christ like you and me are to be preaching, proclaiming, are to be praying, are to be seeking for this kingdom, then you and I ought to know something about this kingdom. And we learn about this kingdom in our passage today. As an outline for us, as we look at this this passage, we'll see three truths about the kingdom of God that Jesus came to proclaim. Three truths about the kingdom of God that Jesus came to proclaim. Really, even three truths about the kingdom of God that Jesus calls for us to proclaim, to pray for, and to seek. Our first truth, as we look at this text, which takes us to the, through the bulk of the text, is really uh, is a lesson about the kingdom of God. And that is that a king, this kingdom of God is a kingdom for prisoners. The kingdom of God is a kingdom for prisoners, or of prisoners, really. And verses 10 through 17. As already mentioned, this narrative is one of Jesus' healing miracles. And we observe, first of all, the action that sets up the dialogue which follows. We see this, this healing that takes place on the Sabbath. But in it, we, what we learn in verse 10 to 13 is that is a king, the kingdom is a kingdom of prisoners who are freed by the power of God. This kingdom is a kingdom of prisoners that are freed by the power of God. We, we see that in verses 10 through 13, where Jesus uh, in verse, is, heals this woman on the Sabbath. Verse 10 indicates that Jesus was teaching once again on the, in a synagogue on the Sabbath, as he did earlier in his ministry. And we might ask ourselves, what do you think he taught? What, what did Jesus teach, probably? If we followed the pattern of his teaching in, in Nazareth, Back in, chapter, uh, back in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, he might have also again opened up to Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. Recall what he, t- what he said when he had the opportunity to teach in the synagogue there? Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Whatever the exact text that Jesus may have proclaimed at this particular synagogue, you can be sure that Jesus was in some way, somehow, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And following his preaching of the kingdom of God, a healing takes place. This healing is is similar to something that took place back in chapter 6, when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Now, along the many worshipers in the synagogue that he, where he, that he, where he had just taught was a woman, a woman who had been sick for 18 years. It's a long time. And Luke reveals, and this, keep in mind, this is Dr. Luke, so he's making a, a medical evaluation of this woman. Dr. Luke reveals that this sickness was caused by a demonic spirit. In some way, somehow, he knew. Now, as opposed to demonic possession, this woman wasn't that. She was demonically afflicted, similar to Job's debilitating illnesses that was caused by Satan. See, this was, in, this was a spiritual battle that was about to take place. The spirit of sickness, the, this evil spirit of sickness, caused her to be debilitated, disabled. She was bent over, bent double as the NAS. She, could not, she was basically bent over such a way that she could not even straighten up at all. And so for long years, she had lived with this disability. 
And you can just imagine what it's like to have a to have a, this this disability uh, that's so visible and for so long. Everywhere she went, for those eighteen years, people would stare at her. Maybe she would have early on she would cast people staring, and then they would avert their glare, perhaps. Eventually, you can imagine she probably learned to to not look at what people were looking at people's eyes. Furthermore, if you recall last week's passage, if you had asked the average Jew why she was that way, they probably would have said and answered that it was because of sin that she probably committed. She must have committed some sin that thus God had afflicted her. We know that's not necessarily true. Yet despite this, her condition, her disability, her, which caused great difficulty moving around, you can imagine, despite the public shame, this woman was here in the synagogue on the Sabbath day to worship the Lord. And Jesus, having taught her, saw her, and he has compassion for her. He calls her over and says to her, you are freed from your sickness. There is authority in the words of Jesus, in the Son of God. For the one who spoke the universe in existence now speaks to bring her healing. With his words, the healing was completed, was already done. The tense of the, of the verb indicates that, that she had already been freed from her sickness. But he goes on because of, uh, he, he, he goes on and furthermore to place his hand on her. He doesn't need to. But in doing so, he, he demonstrates his compassion for her. He touches her. He touches her and perhaps he even helps her upward because she's so used to being bent over. But as he helps her up, immediately she is able to stand on the street. She realizes she's, she is no law. She is freed from the spirit of disability. She is freed from her, from her sickness. Jesus' healings are like that. They're always immediate. They're always irrefutable. The tense of this verb is a passive tense that she was made erect hints that this healing was done by the work of God. And you can just imagine as he speaks these words and then he kind of touches her and then she stands up straight. The whole room's jaws drop. There's shock. There's awe. They were witnessing the power of God work in their midst. This woman who was in bondage for 18 years had been set free. And immediately she breaks out in praise. She glorifies God. She knows that God has healed her. And you would think that everyone else would just immediately join in praise with her. But not quite. We see hypocrisy on the Sabbath. And we learn furthermore that the kingdom of God is a kingdom for prisoners because the king, these prisoners are freed because of the compassion of God. We're freed because of the compassion of God. There's a synagogue official who lacks compassion that we come across in verses 14 to 16. In verse 14, we learn that this synagogue official, the, the, probably the, the leader of the, of the synagogue, he becomes indignant. He's angry. Instead of rejoicing, he's fuming. Why? It tells us in the text, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. 
It's not that a healing, he's questioning where this, this healing actually took place. The healing did. It was irrefutable. This woman was probably no stranger. 18 years, she was, she'd probably been known to them. Instead of, and, and, but yet, he's upset because Jesus healed on Sabbath. Instead of directly addressing Jesus, this official passive-aggressively addresses the crowd instead. He says, if you want to be healed, kind of speaking out there, if you want to be healed, come on the other six days of the week. Don't come on the Sabbath to be healed. In his mind, Jesus had broken God's law, God's commandment particularly the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. That, that commandment said was to observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And they were to keep it holy, but observe it by not doing any work. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12 to 15. The Israelites had developed, though, an elaborate set of rules surrounding what was considered work and what was, and what was not considered work on the Sabbath so that they would not violate this command. The Mishnah, sort of the, the Hebrew kind of oral law, tradition, oral traditions, uh, kind of further elaborating uh, on, on, on the law, expressly forbade 39 forms of work. And there's a long list. You can kind of look there in, uh, on, in the Mishnah for that. And although it was not a part of the list, the officials saw healing as a form of work and thus a violation of the Sabbath. But did Jesus really violate the fourth commandment? Not at all. He merely spoke. That's not working. He touched her. That's not working. And she was healed. Healing was not, that's not working. That was the work of God. And thus her praise of God. She knows that the work of healing has been done by God. And so that's why she praises God. Even by Jewish tradition, those 39 categories of work, Jesus was innocent. But somehow this synagogue official uh, further added to the traditions by saying, you can't heal on the Sabbath. That's what uh, getting caught up in traditions do. You just start adding more and more traditions and everyone uh, thinks of what's right in their own minds about what is right and what's wrong. They just elaborate their own consciences. In verses 15, 16, Jesus calls out the, the hypocrisy of this official. He actually uses the word plural, the plural word hypocrites. So it's likely that it's not just the, the, the synagogue official that's guilty of hypocrisy, but others in the, in the crowd may have been as well. They're thinking the same way. They're like, oh, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Oh, shame. Jesus points out that they themselves, he points out, are hypocrites. Here they are judging him for a work done. When they themselves, out of compassion for their animals on the Sabbath, will unbind their ox or donkey in order to lead to water. And that was allowed in the Mishnah, by the way. Jesus argues in verse 16, that if you have if you have compassion for your animals to unbind them on the on the Sabbath, then shouldn't you have compassion for your fellow Israelite, who has been bound for eighteen years by Satan? Shouldn't she be freed 
on the Sabbath? In fact, Jesus literally says, isn't it necessary? It's almost like this is needed to happen. Isn't it necessary to release from this bond on the Sabbath day? That's what he's saying. Being released of, from, from her bondage is even more right on the Sabbath. Of all the days that she should be set free, it ought to be on the Sabbath. Jesus' point. It is a day of rest. It is a day of rest to reflect upon God and, and His work. How appropriate it is that God would heal this woman so that she might rest from her burden and reflect upon God. And here was an opportunity for the whole community to reflect upon God's power and to praise Him for His work of healing. Instead, the hypocrites are concerned more for their animals and their traditions than this woman, fellow Jewish woman, created in the image of God. Jesus lays bare the hypocrisy. His rebuke of, these, of, of the synagogue officials and others like him reminds us of, uh, of his words on another occasion. Back in Luke chapter 6, when he healed the withered man, a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. In Luke, there in Luke chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus said these words. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or destroy it? And if it's lawful, and the point is, it is lawful to do good. Then certainly it's lawful to heal a woman afflicted by disease. No, not more than that. Afflicted by disease that was caused by Satan. It was fitting for her. It was right for her to be healed and set free on the Sabbath day. One commentator, I like what he wrote on this. He says, For Jesus, the essence of Sabbath is not the postponement or avoidance of the work of God, but the completion of the work of God. And this is why Jesus came to set free those under the bondage of, of sin, of bondage to Satan. The woman's healing leads then finally to the appropriate response to the, in, on the Sabbath, and that is honor, praise. And that we learn that prisoners who are set free in the, in the kingdom of God are freed for the praise of God. We're freed for the, the praise God. While all of Jesus' enemies in verse 17 were being humiliated by his words, they were being shut up, ashamed. The rest of the entire crowd began to rejoice. They were continually rejoicing. They were praising God for the glorious things that he was doing. Not just this healing, but all the things that he was doing. It was one of many, of several things that Jesus had done and it all brought praise to God. The work of God in the kingdom of God is worthy. It's for those who are set free, the response is to praise Him. What's more, three times the Greek word for all is used in the verse. And I'm kind of emphasizing the totality of Jesus' ministry's influence. All His opponents were humiliated. All the crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things He did. We therefore learn in this healing about the nature of the kingdom through the activity of the king. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of prisoners. Make no mistake, prisoners who have been set free by God. 
No. And that is what you and I are as those who follow Jesus Christ. We are prisoners who have been set free by God. Now, when I use these terminology, I, I, in these days, I have to add that this is not a justification for what's known as liberation theology. Liberation theology is, it's, uh, is that false doctrine that emphasizes that the gospel is about deliverance from social injustices. That that's what the gospel is, is deliverance from racism, deliverance from, from the, the, the things that cause poverty. Rather, the gospel that Jesus proclaims is a gospel that proclaims a deliverance from sin. You see, our bondage is not a physical one. Our bondage really is, is, is not of a, a socioeconomic one. Our bondage is a spiritual one. And the gospel sets us free from the bondage of sin and its power. That is the, the message of the gospel it has implications for justice and love and righteousness. But make no mistake, when we talk about the gospel, it is a gospel ultimately that delivers from sin and its power. As the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 3, 23 and 24, for all have sinned. All have sinned. It's not just the, it's not just the, the people in power that have sinned. It's not just the rich people that have sinned. It's not one particular uh, ethnic group that has sinned. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, that is being saved, as a gift by God's grace through, redemp- through the redemption. That's the deliverance, the, the ransom, the setting free, which is in Christ Jesus. All of us have sinned. All of us are under the wrath of God, but we are set free by the death that was the payment and the payment that was made for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the gospel. And as a consequence, therefore, then there is power and motivation for every follower of Christ to, to do justice, to love, to seek righteousness in our world. But don't confuse it. Don't confuse that for the gospel of the kingdom of God. In fact, we, many of us are, many are getting caught up in liberation theology, particularly black uh, liberation theology these days. And it's creeping into the church. Jesus said very clearly that his kingdom is not of this world. We read that in our call to worship, John 18, 36. That's why when the greatest injustice in the world took place, Jesus' angels did not fight to prevent it. He did not prev- they did not seek to prevent that greatest injustice in all of human history. God allowed this great injustice, this greatest injustice in the world, so that you and I would be freed from sin and become kingdom citizens who then proclaim that very same message. As believers in Christ, we are prisoners who have been freed from sin's curse, telling others how they might be freed also. In verses 18 to 19, we learn a second truth about the kingdom of God. And this second truth we find in verses 18 and 19, and that is this kingdom, not only is it a kingdom 
of prisoners or for prisoners, but is a kingdom for all peoples, for all peoples. Verse 18 and 19. Jesus, in verse 18 to 21, tells really two parables. Two parables that are pretty much communicating the same thing. Uh, there's slight differences in each. There, there's, there's a difference, used a different analogy, a different imagery in each. And so there's a slightly different emphasis. But in, at its heart, it is the same. Luke says, I mentioned even earlier in the beginning of our sermon, Luke's use of the conjunction so uh, at this point tells that Jesus' words is the result of what has preceded. In both parables, the story describes something that is small and insignificant, growing and expanding to a great extent. Both parables convey that the kingdom of God will have a small and insignificant, relatively insignificant beginning. Something that the world basically will ignore, will not even notice. But eventually it will grow to a greatness that reflects the glory of God. And this first parable is called the parable of the mustard seed. And Jesus is using an illustration from everyday life, the mustard seed. Uh, it was a common, uh, it was a common a seed in which resulted in a mustard plant that would grow and really a bush that would result in. The mustard seed was among the smallest seeds of Israel, in Israel, insignificant almost, the size of a sesame seed. And as the story goes, a man takes a mustard seed, a single mustard seed, <laughs> and he throws it into his garden. Usually you throw a bunch of seeds to make sure that they grow. He just throws a single mustard seed. The mustard seed was, would have normally produced a shrub, but this single mustard seed that falls in his garden would grow up, and as the parable tells it, it would grow into a tree. The point of saying that it's a tree is that it would grow beyond what is expected even. This mustard tree, mustard seed would grow into such a large tree that in fact the birds would come and make their nests in the branches. It would be high enough, they would, be feel, they would provide shelter so that it would be safe for these birds to come and, and make their nests. The quote that's at the end of verse 19 is a quote from Ezekiel 17, verse 23. And the passage of Ezekiel is a, is a messianic prophecy. And we don't have time to, to unpack it, but it's a messianic prophecy where the messianic kingdom would ultimately provide shelter to other nations as represented by the birds. So here in this parable, the kingdom of God will grow from an insignificance to such an extent that other peoples and nations will come to enjoy its fruits. The Israelites had perceived the kingdom of God to be primarily a Jewish kingdom. Oh yes, there was the occasional Gentile convert, but God's plans was always, for them, in their minds, it was, it was a focus upon them. It was for them. Everyone was outside the kingdom. The kingdom was belonged to them. But God's plan was always that the kingdom would be for all nations and for all peoples. When he chose Abraham, it wasn't just to bless Israel. It was to bless all the families of the earth. And this has significance for our days, this truth that the kingdom is for all peoples. In our days of racial conflict and tension, we need to remember remember that the kingdom of God is for all peoples. We need to be people who are 
aware and cognizant of our own biases and prejudices and yes, racist attitudes and actions. We should observe and think about how it may hinder us from reaching and proclaiming the gospel of God to others who are particularly who are different from us. Jesus calls us to make disciples of your nation. Make disciples of all nations. Church growth gurus back in, well, back in my younger days used to speak of something called the homogeneous unit principle. Where churches that sought to grow, if you really want to grow, you need to target a particular people group. Target particular people like yourselves. So me being a Chinese-American guy uh, raised by um, my immigrant parents, well, I need to be a person, I need, I, if I'm going to reach people and be more effective, I should reach out to Chinese-American guys born out of, from immigrant families. And while this, thankfully, this principle has fallen out of favor among uh, missiologists, it is still a, a reality in practice. People tend to worship in churches where, other, where the people who worship with them are like them. So if we are going to be a kingdom-minded church, a church, a king, a church that seeks the kingdom for all peoples, then we need to consciously and prayerfully seek to build relationships with those that are different from us so that we might share with them the salvation that is in Christ. It's not enough just to say, oh, I have friends that are different from me, of other ethnicities. But do I share the gospel with those who are different from me? Do I love them enough to, and do I, do I, to, I sh- to share the good news of Christ with them that they might know freedom from sin? When we love someone different than us enough to share the gospel with them, we reflect the love of God whose plan is to establish a kingdom for all nations. When we look to the future, when we look to the book of Revelation, we will see that this is God's plan. I love Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. Reminded there of the, the new song that the multitude, the elders are singing. Worthy are you, that is Jesus, to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased and for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. When we when we look at the the church, San Francisco Bible Church, here in San Francisco, in our particular corner of San Francisco. Does this church reflect a church that reaches out to all the different people groups that are in our community? And I know we're improving on this area. We're growing in that area, but we still have much work to do, brothers and sisters. Pray for this. Pray that we would reach all peoples. The third truth about the kingdom of God is that it is a kingdom for every place. A kingdom for every place. Uh, this last parable, in verse 20 and 21, is the parable of the leaven. 
Again, Jesus intends to make a comparison from the parable to the kingdom. He uses another everyday image of, of leaven. Leaven is used in the baking of bread to make it rise. He would only, we use uh, yeast or baking powder today as a form of leaven. And you don't have to put much. You just have to put a very little bit. Uh, and it, in this story, a woman takes and hides uh, some leaven in three pecks of flour. And we don't really know what three pecks of flour, but when, you, when we look in a commentary, we would learn that three pecks of flour is basically equivalent to 50 pounds of flour. What are you going to make with 50 pounds of flour, right? That's a lot of flour. <laughs> 50 pounds, and they come in those little five-pound bags, you know? So 10 of those. <laughs> uh, you can make a lot of cakes with just five pounds. So you can just imagine, mix it with water, then add a little leaven in there. So just 11 and 50 pounds of flour. That's all it takes. Eventually, that leaven, though it's small, you add a little bit of yeast, a little bit of baking powder, etc. It would eventually reproduce in, in that dough, and it would then leaven spread throughout the whole 50 pounds of flour. And this is a picture of the inevitable spread of this of the kingdom of God. It will expand from an insignificant amount, a little leaven, to such an extent that the whole world will come under its influence. Sometimes we Christians, we, we, have, a, we have a problem with feeling insignificant <laughs> um, you know, in our world. We, we, we want to be relevant. We want to be kind of like... Uh, in line with what the world says. We want to be, have an have a influence and power in our world that, is, that the world will recognize. We want the world to simply all look at us and say, oh man, you guys, you, know, you guys are so great. Oh wow, we want to just follow Jesus too. The problem is their, their minds are darkened. They may see it, but they, they don't want to follow Jesus. And this feelings of insignificance sometimes we have will lead us to, to follow after methodologies and, and means that are unbiblical, worldly in fact. And we've got to be careful in that. But at the same time, God calls to be salt and light in our world. Let us, not, let us be careful to not seek for, to influence our world with any other means than the means of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, by the way, that's foolishness to the world. But this parable gives us hope. It gives us strength and encouragement to why we continue on in proclaiming the gospel to a world that doesn't want to hear it and thinks it's dumb, thinks it's foolish, just as I did and just as probably you did for those of you that came to Christ as an adulthood, as an adult. It really makes no sense to the world. It seems like a weak gospel, a weak power. For one day, this kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is not of this world, will eventually spread and expand until it influences and transforms and changes and affects this whole world. It will have a worldwide influence, is the promise of this parable. Because one day Jesus will return and he will sit on his throne and all who oppose him will be judged, and those who worship him will enter into his kingdom. There will be not a single soul who doesn't know the Lord on the earth in that day. 
Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, is a verse that reflects the universal impact of the kingdom of God in the, in, when, he comes, when Jesus returns to the middle kingdom. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's a promise of the universal impact that the kingdom of God is going to have. But when it began, when Jesus walked on earth, it was insignificant. When Jesus began, he was healing and teaching in, in, in outback Galilee. He was healing and teaching the masses, the crowds, not the religious leaders. He was healing and teaching and proclaiming to insignificant, doubled over Jewish women in an unnamed town synagogue. Jesus' ministry began in insignificance. Of course, to you and me, it's of great significance because we have come to understand the significance of why he came. But to the world, it was just a little, if anything, it was just a small footnote. It barely raised a blip. But Jesus' kingdom will expand. It's a kingdom because it's a kingdom for all peoples and it's a kingdom for every place. It will be. when Jesus Christ returns. Well, the kingdom of God, what is it like? It is a kingdom, first of all, for prisoners who are set free by the power of God because of the compassion of God for the praise of God. And it is a kingdom for all peoples and for every place. These are the truths of the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim. This is his kingdom. And so therefore, as those who are citizens of this kingdom, who those who have, us who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we can ask ourselves the, very, some, these, the following questions. What kind of kingdom are you proclaiming? What is your message? What is coming out of your mouths? What kind of kingdom are you seeking and what kind of kingdom are you praying for? What are you praying in your prayers? What are you seeking with your energies and actions and efforts? Let us be men and women who seek and pray for and proclaim the kingdom of God as we learn in this text today. Let's pray. Jesus... We thank you, Lord, for setting up and coming to die on the cross for, for our sins. Thank you for teaching us about the kingdom, your kingdom. Oh, Lord, we pray that as we come to understand these truths, help guard us from, from, from seeking after any other kingdom but your own. Help us to be faithful to proclaim your kingdom and how people can enter your kingdom through faith in, Je- in, in, in Jesus Christ. Help us to be men and women who seek after this kingdom. And if there's anyone who, out there who doesn't know Jesus yet, Lord, who has been seeking and been waiting been sitting there listening to these online services, we pray that you would open their eyes even now, cause them to see that their bondage, their problem is sin. 
that they, the only way to be set free is to be, has been accomplished for them, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that if today they would repent and turn from their sin and turn in faith in Jesus Christ, that you might set them free from their bondage to sin. That you would deliver them by your power, because of your compassion, and for your praise. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. Not only as people are saved through this church, help us, Lord. You know where we're at in our, in our, where we're in our, um, in our reaching out to the nations of this world. You know, Lord, that we have room to improve much, in fact. Help us to reach this community that you placed us in. Help us as individuals to befriend, to love those who are different than us. Take us out of our comfort zones. Help us to understand others. And help us to understand that what they need and what all of us need is forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. To be reconciled with our Creator, to know our King, to know our God, that we too might be, have an inheritance in the kingdom that is coming. A kingdom that, will, that began insignificantly but will grow so that eventually it will, be for all, it will be a kingdom that is for all peoples and a kingdom that is in every place on this earth. Oh Lord, until then, help us be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.